kidding. <laughs> Before we get started in our text, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can spend some time. Lord, we need you this morning. We need you to open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see this text this morning. Protect us from merely seeing words on the page. But help us to recognize that they're your word, your communication to us. And help us to understand them and be transformed by them. So work in our lives. Draw us to yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. So this morning we are in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through uh, 20. 18 to 20 this morning. We need to do a little bit of a review, uh, primarily because of the importance of this text and the following text that come after this. I want to remind you that we've been in Hebrews for quite some time, and we've talked about it most weeks, just reminding you that, that we are learning about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, right? That's what the storyline of the book of Hebrews is about, is trying to help the reader and the hearer to remember that, that Christ is supreme in all ways and above all things and above all people. The problem in the book of Hebrews, as we've seen over and over again, is that the typical Christian oftentimes forgets or does not acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus Christ and instead acknowledges the supremacy of other thing or other people or other opportunities, whatever the case may be. And the reason why is because we have a hard heart, as the scriptures describe in Hebrews, a hard heart, a, a, a cold heart, and dull hearing. And the warning throughout is to be careful, to be cautious, to be after it today, be after it now, at the moment, in the moment, in every moment, that Christ is supreme in our lives. We came to the end of chapter 10, and the strongest of warnings that we've seen so far is the end of chapter 10, the last six or seven or eight verses. When he brings it up to the point where he's, he argues that if Christ isn't supreme in us, and if that is the characteristic of our life, we're not drawn back to repentance and turning back to Christ as supreme in repentance, that ultimately there's only one thing left for us, and that's destruction, eternal destruction. And yet, at the same time, the writer of Hebrews, again, this is just all a review, wants us to remember that it's easy on one hand to say that we have faith, that we are people of faith. But he spends the entirety of chapter 11 reminding us what faith really is. And as we went through chapter 11, I think for all of us, it was a painful reminder uh, and uh, a, a challenge to us uh, that it's, it's cheap to say we are people of faith, but is this what we look like? what we see in chapter 11, which brought us to chapter 12, because if you read through chapter 11 correctly, it's not this amazing, beautiful story of people of the faith in times past. It is a convicting chapter calling us back to Jesus Christ, which is why we come to chapter 12, verse 1, and 1 through 4, with that very, very strong reminder to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. To dial in, to be totally focused on Jesus Christ so that we don't lose heart. And so that we don't grow weary. And then from there, he reminds us, continuing on chapter 12, he reminds us that if he truly loves us, he's going to do what? He's going to discipline us. 
He's going to regularly, continuously discipline us. And we talked about discipline is not this, this idea that we think of. It's merely chastising. It is chastising. But it is also teaching and training. Discipline means that very much so. Because he loves us and he wants us to do what? He wants us to grow up in Christ. He wants us to mature in Christ. And so that's the, the storyline that we've seen. And he emphasizes it from verse uh, 5 and following all the way through to where we are today this importance of the aspect of the Lord's discipline to embrace the discipline of the Lord in our lives because he's maturing us and bringing us to righteousness, bringing us to, to maturity in Christ. And that, that's why he says in 12 through 14 this idea of, of embrace it and, and strengthen yourselves for that. Which brings us down then to verse 18 where he starts out saying for let me read the text to you and then we will we will unpack it for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given quote even if a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned end quote Actually, we're going to continue on beyond that. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to in innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were en enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous. Perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a word from the blood of Abel. And actually, we are I said uh, 18 through 20, but we actually are going to go through 24 this morning. Sorry. <coughs> he starts out in verse 18 with the word for, which clearly tells us he's trying to build off of everything he said up to this point in time. This is not a disconnected passage. The writer of Hebrews is saying, in effect, this. When he says the word for, he's saying, in other words, why should we embrace the discipline of the Lord? Why should we receive that? Prepare for it. Strengthen ourselves for it. Strive after glorifying Christ. Strive after not, verse 16, being like someone like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Why should we strive for peace? Verse 14. Why should we lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet so what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed? Why should we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, going back to the path we've talked about already? Why should we? Why should we examine ourselves? Chapter 11, to see if we really, people are, really are people of the faith. Why should we compare and contrast ourselves with chapter 11 people, the description that we find, that laundry list of people? Why should we? Why should we be concerned about dull hearing or hard hearts or cold hearts towards Jesus besides the fact that it's common among Christians or those who name themselves as Christians? Why should we be concerned about that? Why should we be after today while it's still today? Why? 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 Why should we hold Christ as supreme? Why? 
besides all the things that are said already. Why? Summed up, why should, why should we expect that if we're truly a Christian, why should we expect that God actually would inflame our hearts for him? Why should we expect that? Well, the explanation is given in 18 through 24. It's explained very clearly in a contrast. Remember I talked regularly about we always learn in the contrast, right? Well, the contrast given here in 18 through 24 very clearly. It's broken down 18 through 20 and then 21 through, I'm sorry, 18, I'm sorry, 18 through uh, 21. And then tw- the contrast is seen in 22 through 24. So he says, why should we be after all this stuff and be warning ourselves regularly about all this thing, that he, all these things he's been talking about every step of the way? Why? For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not even endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, I'm reading it again. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. Why should we be after this Jesus? And the contrast is this. It starts out with this negative view. Because we, you, me, we are not like these people described in 18 to 21. We are not in their situation. Something has radically changed for you and I. What situation is he talking about? Well, Clearly, if you read the Old Testament, you know exactly what situation he's talking about. He's talking about a group of people who had just come out of the, the country of Egypt. They were slaves. They had just crossed the Red Sea because God opened the sea and parted it for them and destroyed the Egyptian army. They just crossed over and began walking towards the promised land, and they came to a mountain. Anybody remember what the name of the mountain was? Mount what? Not Zion. Say it louder. Sinai, yes, thank you. Mount Sinai. Sorry, my hearing isn't really good, right, Linda? And Abby? <coughs> they came to Mount Sinai. And when they were at Mount Sinai, God descended on the mountain. There was a cloud. And the people, if you read the story, were absolutely terrified and rightly so rightly so and it's not just rightly so because they can't see God and live because they're sinners in need of a redeemer and the redeemer had what not yet come and so the description we have here is interesting what does he say The mountain cannot be touched. It's a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers what? Beg not to be seen, not to hear anymore. That no further messages be spoken to them. Why? Verse 20, because they could not endure the order that was given. What is it? Even if a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. They couldn't endure it. They could not go to the mountain. They couldn't. They could not approach near to God. They could not come near to him. 
What would happen if they did? Well, the warning was there. It was really clear. You touch the mountain, you're going to you're gonna die. You're going to be stoned. You're dead. And why could they not come? Because God cannot be in the presence of sin. Now, God did, because God is God. He can do what he wants to do. He invited who? He invited Moses to come up the mountain. But even Moses, what does it say about Moses here? He was trembling. He was trembling. But he walked up to the mountain. And he walked up to the top of the mountain. And when he got to the top of the mountain, God what? He spoke to him, didn't he? They talked for a while, didn't they? And then God did something really amazing. Anybody remember what God did? He told Moses to get something for him. Stone tablets. And God proceeded to write on those stone tablets what? The law, right? The law. And he gave the people, through Moses, the law. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds about the broken tablets and again, but the point is he gave to the people the law, didn't he? Well, let me ask you a question. We've been in Hebrews. What's the purpose of the law? To show they need a Savior, and as a result, it does what for them? It opens their eyes that they can see that they are a, they're sinners, right? That they're lost, and that they're doomed. They have no hope. It merely does what? Condemns them. That's the law. So what God gave them was something that ultimately did what? Condemned them. I get the terror of the whole event, don't you? I get the nightmare of the of the situation, which, by the way, resulted very quickly, didn't it? When twenty some thousand died, right? Do you remember the story? Just about immediately, twenty some thousand dies. Why? They're worshiping the golden calf. And if you read the story really closely, Aaron puts his golden calf together. He does it not to worship somebody other than Yahweh. In effect, what he's saying is this is, in effect, he's saying this is the, a representation of Yahweh for you to worship. He's not denying Yahweh. He's, he's saying this is a representation. This is an aid to worship. And 20-some thousand people die because God Right there in the Ten Commandments, says what? No image. No image. Boom. Twenty-some thousand. Gone. I get the terror from the whole process. I get the fear. I get the trembling. I get the dread and, and the gloom. I get it. Now, I don't know about you. I don't even know if I need to say anything else about 18 through 21. It's pretty clear. I don't know about you, when I read Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 11 and the first part of 12, and I think about myself, I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit of doom. I feel a little bit of gloom. I feel a bit of terror. Do you? I mean, it's a hard book, isn't it? Not to say hard to understand, but it's painful, isn't it? Hurts sometimes, doesn't it? 
kind of cuts deep and exposes us to ourselves, doesn't it? By the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's uncomfortable. The writer of Hebrews understands that. He's writing some tough stuff. It's painful. To me, especially when I get into chapter 11 and read about those people that picture what faith looks like. That's painful for me. I don't know if I see myself as clear as I ought to in that. And then this whole fixing our eyes on Jesus exclusively, again, painful, isn't it? I, I, I don't find myself as someone who is just locked on to Jesus. And Ken, you and I have talked about this numerous times, haven't we? Painful. Not, not to expose you, but I know we've talked about it many times. Who among us embraces readily, because you don't have to answer this, but embraces readily the discipline of the Lord? It's tough, isn't it? It's hard. And if we're not careful going through Hebrews, we can come away with just a bunch of doom and gloom. As if we're going to the Mount Sinai again. Can't we? And it's not just Hebrews. Take any book. It's really easy to do so. What the writer of Hebrews wants to do with us, though, is to do something radically different. <coughs> because what he really wants us to focus on is why should we be this way? Why should we think about Jesus this way? Why should we embrace the discipline of the Lord? Why should we strengthen our drooping knees? Why should we be after it today while it's still today that we have hearts that are warm and flamed with Jesus? Why? 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 Well, here's why. Because we don't approach Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is irrelevant to us. Mount Sinai is not for you and me if we are believers in Jesus Christ at all. What we have is something radically different. Notice what he says again. But you, he's referring to people who are saved people, not people who play around, but people who really are saved people. He says, but you have, rather than coming to Mount Sinai, you and I have come to Mount Zion. Radically different place that stands for a radically different thing. You and I have come to Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And he's not even referencing physical Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is. He's referencing something radically different even than that. Because listen to what he says again. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. What does he say next in your text? The heavenly Jerusalem. He's not talking about the physical Mount Zion where the temple mount is today in the middle of Jerusalem. He's saying that Mount Zion 
was merely a picture of what was yet to come. What is he talking about? This heavenly Jerusalem he's talking about is this. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The eternal kingdom of God. God rule and his children are present. He says to the reader of Hebrews, Mount Sinai is not for you. But you instead come to Mount Zion. What's the significance of Mount Zion? Well, he gives a big list of, of, of it here. But I want to, before we get into the list of what he gives, I, I want to step behind that list to something that the writer of Hebrews in a very real way is assuming that you already understand. So let me give it to you. In the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the presumption that the, that the writer of Hebrews has that you already understand is this. In Mount, Zion, in Mount Sinai, at Mount, I'm sorry, at Mount Sinai, the people were given the law. The law condemned, looking forward to the promised Messiah, but it condemned. It shows they need the Redeemer, as you already mentioned. But according to the, the timeline, the, the, the historical redemptive timeline of the Scripture, the Redeemer has come, Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures tell us when he came, he did what with regard to the law? He fulfilled the law. It's fulfilled in him. Completed. Accomplished. Done. In him. As a result, his children now have a new relationship with God. A different relationship with God. No longer does the law condemn? No longer is the law a schoolmaster. We are set free. We no longer are bound, chained on that side, on the Mount Sinai side of Christ. Because when he came, Sin, Satan, and death were conquered. And his children are absolutely set free. And so now everything's changed for those who are in Christ. And that's why we have this list here. But you have come to a Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he goes on to describe it. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Again, I want to stop on these and explain them a little bit. He says, you, if you are a believer in Christ and have your sins have been paid for and you've been redeemed, it says what? You're, you've come to a different mountain that is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And the idea of the city of the living God is he's on the throne. He's ruling and to innumerable angels, his beings that he's created for a variety of reasons. But notice how he describes them. How does he describe them? In festal gathering. What's he talking about? Yes, there's a festivity, there's a celebration going on. 
this is where we gather. We don't gather at Mount Sinai anymore where there's a bunch of doom and gloom and fear and on and on. Why should we be fixed on Jesus? Because he's brought us to this place of ultimate festivity. The angels are dressed, innumerable angels are dressed in festal gathering. The festivity is raging, celebration is going. What celebration? What's that? Yes, the inception of God's kingdom. Celebration because, because all of the conundrum of mankind has been dealt with. Man has been set free. Those who are in Christ. And the kingdom is unstoppable. And all that's left is celebration. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it's described in an interesting way. What, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, not about angels, but the activity, <coughs> is a picture of God, Christ, leading a parade. It's actually a ticker tape parade almost, if you could picture that. It says that in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, that Christ is leading us, that is, believers, true believers, he's leading us in a parade. Down the street, a parade. What street? What city? What is it? It's the eternal city of God. Who's he leading? Us. Who's us? Those who once were his enemies. Because he has conquered the ultimate enemy, Satan, he has captured us from the kingdom of darkness and he's bringing us into the kingdom of light and there is this amazing celebration going on. As we're his captives. But we're part of the celebration because he loves his captives. And all through the city there is this aroma wafting out everywhere. An aroma of life unto those who are saved and death to those who are lost. And it's everywhere smelling victory. And the angels, and this is not referring to a future time. I want to remind you, did you see it? Here it says, but you, here's the words, have come. Do you see that? That's not future tense, is it? It's ongoing. You have come and you're there is the picture. You have come and you're there, and the idea is, and you'll remain there. If you're a believer in Christ, you have come. You're there. You remain there. Why should we be after these things? Because of our, our new location, our new citizenship. No longer a citizen of the old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, but now a citizen of the kingdom of light. And he says here, the angels, innumerable angels, are, are in festival gathering. They're celebrating what? The kingdom is, is established. The kingdom is ongoing. The kingdom is forever. And here is his kingdom, people. The kingdom people are being brought in. Celebration. The after the one who has rescued us. That's the point. These angels are after, they're celebrating what? That Christ and his great sacrifice is successful. And they're 
coming in. And the angels are celebrating. It goes on. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come to the city of God, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. And that's where the assembly of the, of the firstborn are enrolled in heaven. Are you, are you a, a saved person? Are you someone who has been captured by Jesus Christ and his death, his atonement has been applied to you? Wow. What does he just say? We think about being, being a member of this church. Those of you who are members of this church, and we think about it as being a member of this church. Redeeming grace, Baptist church, I'm a member. Not according to this text. If you're a Christian, what does that mean? Did you hear what he said? And to the assembly of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus Christ. And to the assembly, referring to the church, to the assembly of the firstborn, who are what? Enrolled where? In heaven. And where did it start out? You have come. Today, we're sitting here. You're sitting here. I'm standing here. You're listening. I'm flapping my gums. Today, here, right now, if you're a saved person, you've been, your, your sins have been atoned for by Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. You and I are today, now, enrolled in heaven. Today. Your name, my name, is on the roll. And I know, exactly. It's like, that's the reality. My name is on that roll, right now, written in the blood of Jesus. That's where I belong. That's my membership. I have come to the city of Zion. He goes on. And he says, and to God the judge of all. That is, God is there. We are coming to God. Not just our coming, we have come. You see, the reality is, he, again, in the, in the words mean something, and the words he chose is this. You have be, been er, enrolled. You're, you have come to where you're enrolled. And you have come to God. In other words, if I belong to him, I'm already in his what? Presence. I'm already there. This is crazy thinking. This is a crazy concept. I'm already there. Yes, but it's even more than that, though. It's even more than that because he's very specific. I, I, I'm not putting down the Holy Spirit here, Tom. Not at all. I'm not minimizing. But it, it, when he says God, he's referring to the entirety of the Trinity. Because you're going to see a little bit of Jesus Christ in the picture as well. We are in the presence of God. As enrolled ones, we've come to God. He goes on. And to God, the judge of all, which means what? Implication. Obvious, the first implication is judgment. The second implication is this. You've been already judged. Now, there's a future judgment coming. But you've already been judged in order to be in the enrollment. 
He's a judge of all, and some judging is already taking place. You're already enrolled. Some judgment of God has already taken place on you and I already. Now, we're going to pack this a little more in, in, in a second. What else did he say about this Zion, Mount Zion, this kingdom of God, this living, or this heavenly Jerusalem. He says, we have come also to the spirits of the righteous already made perfect. What he's talking about is this. Remember what he said in chapter 11 as he listed that laundry list of people of faith? He said that uh, these people would not be made perfect apart from us. He's referencing those Old Testament saints. The ones that have gone on before, and it's referenced also at the beginning of chapter 12, right? The great vast cloud of witnesses of the reality of the truth of faith in God. We have come, we have been united to those who have gone before us. We are united in the kingdom of God, in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, with those who have gone before in faith. We're all in the, in the same kingdom. We're all the same citizenship. Why should we be after Christ? What is he saying? Because we're already in the kingdom. Why should we be after knowing Christ and Christ being supreme? Because we're there. He goes on. Verse 24. We have come to Jesus and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, different from Mount Sinai, a new covenant, a Zion-esque covenant, mediator of a new covenant. A new covenant. A covenant that completes what was lacking in the old covenant. Because the old covenant demanded a redeemer. The new covenant, last week we celebrated communion. What did we say? This is the what we gave the when we took the cup, what do we say? This is the new covenant in my blood. And here is exactly what he's saying. This is the mediator of a new covenant. And remember we say we say almost every communion about the new covenant? The covenant in my blood? What do we say about what do we say almost every communion? Does anybody remember about what is a covenant? It is twofold I give you. Every time. Number one, it is a promise, correct? A covenant is a promise, but it's not merely a promise. It's a promise that does something. What does it do? Can you remember? You guys need to listen to our communions more carefully. It changes our very identity. It's a covenant. It's a promise that isn't just a promise, but it actually alters our very identity. That's what a covenant is. And he says here, we have come, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new identity changer. It's a promise. And there's promises that yet have to be fulfilled, right? One day when we're with him in his presence perfectly. But in this already time frame, the promises are already, have already come and are coming fulfilled. Why? Because we are, have come to Jesus and he's a, in this Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That is, he's the one who makes sure that it actually 
comes to fruition. He's the one who actually makes sure that it actually happens. And it has happened and yet will happen. In other words, its initial stuff has happened. The initial promises have been fulfilled and it's continuing to be fulfilled and will ultimately be fulfilled when we are in glory. And we have come to Jesus. This mediator of a new covenant that he promises to fulfill and has fulfilled. And lastly, he says, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which is an interesting conclusion. And we're not concluding with the text already. I want to say this, but I will throw it. But <clears throat> and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Interesting description. Because here's what he, what he just said. If you go all the way back to Genesis, where Cain kills Abel, I believe it's Genesis chapter 4. The scriptures record that the blood of Abel streams out from the ground for what? Vengeance. The blood of Abel streams out for vengeance because sin has been committed. Correct? Violence has taken place. Cain killed his brother Abel because of hatred and jealousy and anger. And the blood of Abel screams out for vengeance. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what Cain did was evil. If anybody deserved to die, it was Cain, not Abel. Cain lived, Abel didn't. Vengeance! But when we come to the city of God, when we come to Mount Zion, we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood how does it speak of blood? Well, first of all, what's this other sprinkled blood? The blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus screams out. It speaks out a better word than the blood of Egypt. That's, uh, I'm sorry, the blood of Abel that screams out vengeance. The blood of Jesus screams out a better word. What's the better word? It is this. Vengeance accomplished. Vengeance Filled. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that's what the better sprinkled blood is screaming out. The vengeance accomplished. Why? Because vengeance was meted out. Wrath was meted out on Jesus. Wrath for my sin. Wrath for yours. Because you and I, according to the scriptures, were, as it were, at the feet of Jesus on the Mount of Crucifixion, Mount Golgotha. And you and I were in the courtyard screaming out, crucify him. We demand vengeance. We just didn't realize what we were calling for vengeance on. And why? You and I at the foot of the cross, along with both the repentant for a while and the unrepentant thief, screaming out mockeries, spitting on him, ridiculing him, 
vengeance, the wrath of God for your sins and mine. Full vent of vengeance was upon Jesus. And the sprinkled blood of Jesus now says what? Vengeance. Wrath has been satisfied. You see, the blood of Jesus brings out a better word, doesn't it? The, the, the blood of Jesus screams out, no more wrath. No more wrath. No more vengeance. To who? To those who have come to Mount Zion. To those who have come. No more wrath. No more vengeance. Sin has been dealt with. The wrath of God, the scriptures say, absolutely satisfied. That's where we've come. If you're a believer and I'm a believer, that's where we've come. By the grace of God, we have come to Mount Zion. Not we will, we have. We have. People I hear say all the time, Christians I hear say all the time, there is coming a future day when the kingdom will, will be established and when we'll be in the kingdom of God. And I hear that people say that all the time. And I say, no! No! Stop it! Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew 28 said, all authority, all power has been given to me. Very, very kingdom words. He rules. He's in charge. His kingdom is forever. It's been established. You have come. It's, again, past tense with continuing ramifications. You have come. The kingdom does exist. We're in it. We're living it, breathing it, existing in it, in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of light. That's where we are who we are if we're in Christ. And why is that? How is it possible that I could, unlike the, the, the children of Israel who could not go to Mount, Mount Sinai, how is it possible I can approach Mount Zion? Again, part of the story that, that Hebrews doesn't necessarily clarify, but elsewhere it does. Here it is. The reason why is not because I'm so good <laughs> and you're so good. Not at all. But the scriptures tell us absolutely the reason why is because if we've been forgiven by Jesus and his blood has been sprinkled on us, the transaction is amazing. And you've heard me say it before, but according to the scriptures, what Jesus did is he stood in our place. It wasn't his place. It was ours. The place of wrath, the place of condemnation, the place of judgment. And you've heard me say it many times. He took on an alien sin. Not his. He took on yours. He took on mine. And in taking on yours, your sin and mine, he absorbed an alien wrath. 
Does the wrath that belong to you or not? Because we are people who have rejected him and despised him and ridiculed him and mocked him and turned our own way. That's what the scriptures say. In Isaiah, it's very clear. And he took on that alien wrath that belonged to you and I. And he died. But that's not the whole transaction. According to the scriptures, <coughs> he died and rose again. And then for his children, the transaction becomes complete because he takes you and I and he places us in his place. He stood in our place. He places us in his place. And in placing us in his place, we don't belong there. Because we're still sinners, aren't we? So what does he do? Yes, he gives us an alien righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. Isn't that incredible? He gives us, I'm sorry, Jim, he gives us his righteousness. Mind-blowing. He places us in his place, not illegitimately, legitimately, because he's given us his righteousness. And so that when judgment takes place, the Father sees Christ. And not me. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And that's our new identity. Our new identity is Jesus. Remember what we said? Andrew, you said it so clearly. The covenant, the new covenant, is a promise that involves an absolute change in identity. What's the new identity? It is Christ, so that when the Father looks at us, he sees Christ. And that is our entrance into and onto Mount Zion. Because when we walk to Mount Zion, when we come to Mount Zion, which we have come if we're in Christ, we come as Christ. And so when God looks at us, He sees Christ. And when the angels look at us, they see Christ. Absolutely amazing. And so when we came to Mount Zion at salvation, we walk into this festivity, this incredible festival going on that's not about you. The festival celebrating that Christ has accomplished what he set out to accomplish, and he was effective at it. It was powerful, and people have been changed from being haters of God to being lovers of God because they've been given His righteousness. Wow. So that when we are there and He says, well done, good and faithful servant, at the end, He's saying that about Jesus. And we'll know it. Not because we did so well. We enter into Mount Zion. We don't go to Mount Sinai. Amen? We don't go there anymore. Why? The reason why we don't go is because there's no need to go because we've gone to and remain at Mount Zion that Mount Sinai pointed toward. Why stay at the signpost when you can be at the destination? Now, we look at it and say, yeah, but Steve, this, this certainly doesn't feel like Mount Zion. <laughs> Life's kind of tough. 
Life's kind of hard, isn't it? Life's tough. And sin is re- present all the time, isn't it? We're being tempted all the time. The war, it's crazy. It's ongoing. It's forever. It's like, what in the world? Will it never end? No, it won't. Not this side of glory. When you were saved, you got new citizenship papers. You did. And Christ tore up the old citizenship papers. And the old kingdom, the dark kingdom, the, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And he gave you, by his grace and mercy, citizenship to this new kingdom and changed it. Yet we still live in this fallen world. That's why we describe this theologically as this already not yet time frame. We've already been brought into the kingdom of God. We've already been brought into Mount Zion, to Mount Zion. And yet, as John says, we do not know what we will be like, but we know we'll be what? Like him. That's the future, the conclusion of the matter. We now are in the between, already not yet, and someday it will be yet, it will be then. But in the interim, we live, according to the scriptures, in a foreign land. That's what it says. We're pilgrims. We're sojourners. Why is that? Because this is not our kingdom. We're not citizens of this kingdom. We're foreigners because we are a kingdom. I'm sorry, we're citizens of a different kingdom. That's what Jesus said. Is He said to Pilate, right? He said, if my followers were of this world, what? They would what? They would fight. They're not. They're citizens of a different world. We are citizens of a different world. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are travelers in this world. This is not our world. This is not our kingdom. This stuff is anti our kingdom. And so we are lights in the midst of darkness because we've already come to the city of God. And we are citizens. Ah, We're on a journey together at the same time. Kind of like if you were in, I don't know, Iran as a U.S. citizen. You'd be in a country, a kingdom that'd be very different. Not just different, right? It'd be different. But it'd be the antithesis of the United States, right? Does that make sense? It's fraught with danger all everywhere, wouldn't it be? Every step fraught with danger. Our citizenship is U.S. Even more so, I am in a, 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 a kingdom that's fraught with danger every step. I'm a citizen of a different kingdom, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. And here's the difference. If I was in Iran today, I'm on my own, aren't I? It's not just fraught with danger. I most likely am not going to get out. But in this story, I'm not on my own. I'm in a different kingdom. I'm in the kingdom of darkness, living. But I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. And I've come 
in this already not yet time frame. I've come, but I'm still on a journey to get to a conclusion. But I've not been left alone. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. <coughs> and light drives out darkness. And darkness can't win on light, over light. And all the promises of God are applicable to us. And he's promised to bring it home. He's promised, according to John 15, him, out of all the Father gives him, what? He loses none. <sighs> now do you get it? If all that is true, why wouldn't we fix our eyes on Jesus? Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. So you don't lose heart. Why wouldn't we fix our eyes on Jesus? Why wouldn't we embrace fully the discipline of the Lord? Because we know that the discipline of the Lord is because he loves us to help us to do what? To live in this already not yet time frame so that we can one day where beware fully in the kingdom of god that we've already come to exclusively at mount zion why would we be after all the time having sharp hearing warm soft hearts why would we on the other side of the coin be why wouldn't we be after all the time today while it's still today so that I don't get a hard heart. Why would I be after that? Because I already have arrived <laughs> at Mount Zion. And because of what Christ has accomplished and is doing in my life, why wouldn't I? My goodness. Why would I get caught up in the stuff of this world if I Understood Mount Zion. Why would I get caught up in the crazy stupidity of things that are passing away, that thieves break through and steal, and that moths destroy and, and rust destroys? Why would I get caught, caught up in that stuff? When you're Mount Zion, that I'm already a citizen of. Compare and contrast Mount Zion with Sinai. Why am I getting caught up with Sinai? When I get to Zion. Why do I get caught up in the stuff that condemns? When I can get caught up with the one who sets free. And that's the point of the text. That's the point. We get hard hearted, cold hearted, dull hearing. Because we forget, <laughs> number one, our citizenship. And number two, we forget who gave us that citizenship. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross.
the size of a chain and receive the presence of God. And one day, one day, we will, according to Scripture, see him as he is. Amen? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, shall we? What an amazingly gracious and loving and merciful God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we desperately need your help. We live in a world that is fallen. We live in the midst of vast, vast amount of people who are citizens of the kingdom of darkness. They are also people who have not yet been glorified. We have been saved. We are being sanctified. But we have not yet been glorified. So we are in this already not yet time frame and we desperately need you. And so we ask you, help us today. Because we easily get distracted by baubles. We easily get distracted by nice, shiny things. And it's easy for us, even now, <coughs> to look at Jesus and say there's nothing comely in him. So, Lord, I ask you to warm our hearts that we will see the love of Christ so that we will hear the better voice of the sprinkled blood of Christ. Soften our hearts so that we will understand the reality of Mount Zion. Help us to recognize the revelry of the kingdom of God of the heavenly Jerusalem. Help us to understand our citizenship and the ramifications. And so draw us to worship. In your name I pray. Amen. <coughs>